Welcome to Tech Writer Voices, a podcast specifically for technical writers. This is part two of the presentation on usability by Karen Bachman, who is the manager of the usability SIG. Uh, this presentation runs about 45 minutes, and there's actually a part three as well. Remember, we're online at www.techwritervoices.com. You can subscribe so that when there are new podcasts, you can receive an email, or you can also subscribe to the RSS feed. And again, if you want to offer some feedback or comments on this podcast or to give to Karen, you can email me at tom at techwritervoices.com or send an email to Karen at, the, at her email listed in the show notes. Jenny Reddish and Joanne Hackless put together um, or have written the pretty much the Bible of user and task analysis called User and Task Analysis Book. It's a white cover with a brown um, brown lettering on it. It's it's everywhere. Um, if you go to the SDC conference, I'm sure it'll be available in their bookstore. It's it's um, I think in its third printing, but I won't swear to that. The process of learning in that process word about ordinary users by observing them in action and um, it's very key that you not just collect demographics like experience, but you also know in their world what is significant. Um, you identify needs and expectations. That's important. Not, not just what does the system need to do, but really what their needs are, how they approach things. You do look at things like demographics, experience level, computer experience level, education level, um, accessibility issues like motor control concerns. Um, I, I keep picking on the teachers, but I know I have an aging population in the teacher um, world. There's a lot of evidence about not being able to attract new teachers. Um, I don't have any um, governmental requirements to um, deliver accessible, um, you know, fully 508 compliant um, applications, but I know I have a usability requirement there because those people are not going to be as comfortable um, with some of the uh, swoopier, younger-oriented sites that I've seen, you know, real tight little text and, you know, gray on black and, and difficult things that, you know, it's just, you know, we, <laughs> I don't like the gray on black and, you know, and, and I'm actually, you know, targeting people who I know are, you know, getting to the point where they've got bifocals and putting them in that situation that makes a very unpleasant experience. I need to be sensitive to that. I need to be cognizant of that. And that actually gets, you know, bring, jump right down here, empathy. I need to, I don't have a requirement in my company. There's no business driver that says this has to be accessible. But if I care about my users, I need to factor that in and understand that. And that some of that comes from the demographics, their background, their experience, and, and what I know about them. You don't come up with the user. You don't come up with a single profile. But you do come up with uh, a set of data that tells you, you know, okay, here's kind of our bell curve and, and you know, what's the age population, what's the um, competency in the field and that sort of thing. Um, when I work with call center software, I know that I've got high turnover rates. So I'm not going to be finding people that have, you know, as a rule, copious amounts of experience in that area because they're going to be there tops three years and they're moving on to the next job. Um, you know, that, that's the end of the bell curve and they're gone. Uh, they're doing something else. Um, so that's a very different de demographic than somebody who's going to be a lifer at the company. You know, they've got 20 years experience. They know the place inside and out and everybody knows them. Very different interaction. But I can look at that bell curve and understand it. And I can, you know, have a profile that just 
catalogs that, that information, or I can create something called a persona, which uh, you create fictitious users, kind of composites of um, the different people that you interact with. And you pick a couple of them. And you, you're, to your question earlier, you were asking about um, how do you select those things. Well, I might have, you know, Joe Smith, my novice user, um, and Carol, my uh, intermediate user, and uh, Bobby Shark, my expert user. And that may be the three personas I develop. And I write in some of that information into that persona. I don't have a persona's um, option to present on, but um, there are a number of good resources out there that you can take a look at. Um, the origin of the idea was um, Alan Cooper in his the Inmates Are Running the Asylum book, and he was the per first person who uh, promoted it. I think, I can't remember if it's cooperdesign.com or if it's cooper.com uh, is his website. If you go out and search for Alan Cooper and Persona, you will, you will hit it in Google, um, top hit. And a number of the people who work for his consulting company write about constructing good personas. If you want to learn more about it, I'll reference you to that, that site. The last point is that user research is subject to change. Your people change all the time. People grow. Your demographics shift. Um, all of those things are true for the individuals. Therefore, you can't do user research once and then sit on it for 20 years. Even if I'm still targeting teachers 20 years from now, the the problems of those teachers, the experience, the qualities that make those teachers um, part of reality are going to be different than the people 20 years ago, which is why I'm very careful with the SMEs that I work with, most of whom were in the classroom 15, 20 years ago, and they understand that, yeah, they don't understand the realities of the no child left behind world, but um, they often don't recognize how that impacts the fundamentals that they are very well versed in, so it's an interesting little dance there. Any other questions on the just general high-level user research before I move on? Task analysis, which I said is part of that. I copied the same quote in there because it applies. You can't really do one without the other well. You really are looking at who and you know, what they do, who they are, what they do. Um, it's the way they really do their work, not the way we idealize it. Now, sometimes it is the way we... Um, management idealizes it. So we want to change our processes. We're bringing you in here to create this revolutionary new system. We're going to reduce headcount. We're going to cut the time down. Don't ask them because they have this old way of doing it that takes two weeks. We want it two hours. So sometimes you do break their models. You do have a, a charge from the customer to break the models of the user. But I reckon that that is why we have the 85% failure rate having not gone down a whole lot for software projects because people keep trying to do that and users keep defeating it. <laughs> so, you know, you do sometimes get that and then you have an interesting, interesting dilemma as a usability person. But you really want to know how they do their task. And you want to know <coughs> how, how they're accustomed to it. All the little things that they do. Um, the, mod, the user model, um, I'm trying to remember this. That's in my, in my notes. There's a book, um, I think Marlana Coe does quite a bit on usability for technical writers. Her book um, talks a lot about understanding that user model. And Theo Mendel's book is another one that's good for talking about user models. All this is in the, in the re references which will be posted on the uh, website. And um, understanding just basically everything that they come to the table with. Um, and that's whether they've used a competitor tool, whether they're still using paper-based and they're transitioning to online, whether they, their simple mode of getting uh, information about how to work with something is you know, calling over the cube wall. You know, some, think about what would happen if you wrote your online help the way people call over the cube wall. 
Think about the think about how that would change the interaction. Not just the language, not just the you know conversational tone, but just just how you would address that kind of a dialogue. Hey, I can't figure out how to create a task in Outlook. Can you show me? What what kind of what kind of approach would you have if if you turn that into a conversation? Um, process, not tools. I always make the point is that. I need to define the task as if all they've got is a chisel and a, sl a slab of stone. You know, if they can do that process, or even you know, number two pencil and ruled paper, um, which is <laughs> darn near as close for a lot of users uh, to the chisel and stone. But I care the basic fundamentals. I don't care that they click, you know, F12 to go in. You know, when I, I've had to translate, um, you know, the amber screen systems, the terminal-based systems, um, to a Windows environment, and that's a big. That's a big traumatic shift. I care about those things, but when I'm documenting the tasks, when I want to understand the fundamental of the task, I don't care about F12. I don't care about this um, command code. I care very much that you know, step one has to have this data has to be collected and entered, and then this data has to go in and this um, action has to take place. So that's the high-level view of task analysis. And environmental analysis, again, context of use is important. Um, the kind of interface that I would provide to somebody down on a shop floor, a machinist shop floor, is going to be very different than what I would provide to an office worker, um, right down to the very um, hardware itself. Um, there's a lot of really good studies about you know touchscreen interface or yeah touchscreen interfaces and kiosks in um, shop environments. When what, what happens when you put a greasy little, uh, grease covered finger? <laughs> on one of those kiosks. Not even for the technology, the damage to the technology, but the screen simply doesn't see the finger. It doesn't react to it because there's not that, not what it's looking for. Um, so those types of things about understanding where they're going to be doing it. Con contextual inquiry is actually going out to a site and observing the user in their, in their environment and seeing these things. Um, as many details as you can get, if you can get there, or to interview the users, or you know, have someone send you snapshots. You know, we've got you know cell phones that have cameras on them. If you've got an in, give take a couple shots around there. Um, you know, post-it notes covering their monitor with with F12 and their logins and all of these different things that they need to have. Those things are important to, to detail and understand. It's about identifying the noise in some ways too. Um, for those of you who've ever taken mass comm corp, uh, courses. Um, I remember that, that communication model that they told us about. There's a, um, just blank. There's a receiver and there's a um, transmitter. And in between, there's the signal that you're trying to send. And there's invariably noise, not only on the line itself, but, and I'm not talking the technical stuff. I'm talking about that those are people on either end. I'm thinking about, I've got groceries to pick up, I've got to vote this weekend, I've got to um, get my ferret into the vet. Those are noise. Those are things that are affecting my ability to understand what you're saying when you say, I'd like to go out for a beer afterwards. <laughs> you know, it's those are the things that I bring to the table. And everybody has them. We all have a thousand and one things demanding on us. And we need to understand our users have those same thousand and one things. And how can we cut through the noise to give them exactly what they need to get the job done that they need to do. Moving on. Usability requirements. Um, once you do understand who your users are and where they are, you can operationalize, that's a term I borrow from uh, Carol Barnum's book on usability testing, those goals. And you can start quantifying um, 
you know, less than two clicks, uh, less than three errors. Um, those are types of things that you can do to basically um, identify how the system should behave the, cor the correct way it should work to work well for the intended users. Um, you want to make those measurable. That's why the, the operationalized part, you, you know, want to make it concrete. You can't say it just should work well because that doesn't mean anything. How do you test it? How do you know it works well? How do you prove that? Um, you need it to be measurable and, and achievable. It's also a good communication tool because requirements are generally recognized as a um, go-to point for a development team in whatever form the requirements take. So by putting them in this format, I find it's a very effective way to get people to notice usability, where they aren't going to, they aren't going to read my, reader, my user research report. They're not going to look at any of my usability test results. They're not going to look at any of these things, but if I translate them into their world and their language, they might notice. They might consider it when they're doing the development. And always keeping the user visible, it's a really, because at its best, and this is not a perfect world, I know you're probably thinking, going, yeah, we write requirements. I think I saw them about six weeks ago. No one's looked at them since, um, and we're on, you know, iteration four of our development cycle. But, but, you know, if you've got an environment where that works, it does keep the user visible. It does remind them, hey, by the way, there's a wetware component of this, and at the end of the day, someone's got to sit down and use this thing or read this thing, or browse this thing, or be enticed to stay on this website, or whatever, whatever it is you're working on. So it's a, they're a very good communication tool, and they're a very good way of um, ensuring visibility of the user. Once you understand kind of where you're going, the roadmap you've created from the requirements and understanding the user, you get into design. This is my definition, an iterative, exploratory process for creating a product that meets user needs. And I say exploratory because it's important to understand your first design is rarely going to be the right one. You're going to keep coming back and learning things. Yeah, you've done all this research and analysis, but, the, and this is why this also starts in the analysis phase, you're still going to have to probably do a little more work because once you start putting a picture down, people are still going to react that way. Um, you put words down on paper, they interpret the words. You put a picture down, a lot of times they, oh, suddenly realize they've interpreted the words wrong. That's been an experience I've had repeatedly. You show the requirements. Yeah, we approve the requirements. That's exactly what we want. Mm -hmm, that'll work exactly what you want. Here's what you want in a picture form. Uh-uh, that's not going to work at all. It's going to completely bomb. Uh, so uh, the, that's why I say exploratory. You will learn things in the process. Um, and, and don't, you know, just as we do drafts and we pass around our SMEs and we, you know, try to figure out um, the right way of phrasing something, catch all the little details in the processes and that sort of thing. So it's, it's very familiar for us as technical communicators to go through that process. The kinds of deliverables that come out of design, sketchlets, which are early, what I, the term I use for, to refer to early concepts, I've also heard um, uh, vision prototype, um, napkins in a restaurant, um, any of those type of things, very, very disposable. The important part of sketchlets is that they're very quick to make for the most part, even if you're not very artistic. It doesn't have to be. You're not, you're not documenting the controls exhaustively. You're not, you know, worried about the shape of the logo or anything like that. You just want to get a concept down so that you don't have that complete shock when you show a, com you know, completed prototype and it's been, you know, hours spent, you know, crafting these screens and have them go, we agreed to that? <laughs> hmm. What does our contract say with this? I... <laughs> don't like that experience. Wireframes are a little more detailed. You start to get into layout where things fit. You start to define those controls. Is it a drop-down? Is it a radio button? Is it a tab? Um, 
mock-ups start to marry functionality with look and feel. You start to decide what it's going to look like, what are the graphic elements of it. Functional prototypes, actually, technically, all of these are prototypes, but I, again, call out functional prototypes um, because that really starts to get through something that can work in some way. And I also include in there, in the design, content outlines and site maps for the, you know, for the preliminary design pieces. Um, layout of the documentation, a page layout is also part of that. I just included a couple things here. But those things, you know, if I do a content outline and think, well, this is my task flow. This is, you know, if I'm doing task-based documentation, I'm doing this flow. This is why I think it'll work. And, you know, you put it in front of me and say, no, I actually do this step up here. It's a prototype. <coughs> Site map, same idea. Any questions before I move on? We're nearing the end of the intro part. Usability testing. You evaluate the design against the success criteria, and where do you get success criteria? The requirements. You should always get that for any test cycle. Um, you do conduct it throughout the development life cycle. I showed you that, that it's all along the bottom. Kind of tapers off in the testing phase, and it's really more... Um, confirmation and prep work for the next phase if you do any testing within the maintenance phase because it's out there in the world already and uh, any changes at that point is released too. Um, you want to do early and often. It's like, what was it, Mayor Daly said, vote early, vote often. Um, testing, definitely early, often, iteratively, fast. You want to get lots of good feedback. It's less important that you have a um, statistically pure, well-constructed behavioral analysis than it is that you have good feedback that says, this just doesn't work. You want to test, does it meet their needs, expectations. Going back to what we said about the user research, you think you understand their needs and expectations. You've tried to design something that meets them. Here you're making sure that you've done so. So now it's the driving part uh, for you guys. I don't know if you can see those. It's basically the same uh, draft I had before. But we can drill down further into some of the details of user research. Um, I also included, um, I uh, presented some years ago with uh, Caroline Jarrett uh, information about constructing user surveys. So I included that for your uh, edifications if you'd like. Um, a little bit about the design process, uh, usability requirements, or usability testing. Uh, sorry, I don't have links on everything, but I didn't have time to, to create a couple ones. I just... And I can't show you my client's stuff, so sorry. I've got to draw a line. So what would people like to see? Surveys. Surveys? Yes, Surveys. Okay. Okay. We'll look at user surveys. Some definitions. <clears throat> a survey is planned. That's the key thing. It's planned method of finding something out. You go into it knowledgeable about what you're trying, you know, going with the hypothesis in many respects. A questionnaire, which is a type of survey, is a formal series of questions. You write it all out detailed. The interview is a little more um, dynamic version of that. Not always, but a little more dynamic because you take that set of um, questions and interact with a person to find those things out. The basic is a, a survey is the type of basically method, and these are two, the two standard ways of, of implementing that method. So an interview, as I said, it's interactive. You talk to the user. You capture what they have to say. 
it's real flexible because if they bring up an interesting point that you never thought about, you can always change your, change your question. You can ask an additional one. Hey, I didn't know about that. Let me ask you one more question. And it's generally small samples because you just can't talk to 10,000 people in a reasonable frame of time. Time frame, excuse me. Questionnaire. The user does it themselves. You don't interact with them. Typically it's written um, or punched in in the case of things like SurveyMonkey. <clears throat> it doesn't change. You can't handle dynamics. And you also run into problems where, again, I, I said about how SMEs and, and expert users will see the words when you write requirements and then you show them the picture. There's an interpretation. There's that noise that gets in the way of the communication exercise. So if they misread an answer and you can't adjust for it, um, you're stuck with the data that you get. And, but it does support large samples very quickly, in fact, because you can send out 10,000 and get them back in the same time frame all at once. Um, or you can do something like SurveyMonkey where you can collect data electronically. And that, uh, you can tell I like that, that tool, don't, don't you? Um, so those are the distinctions, and you have to decide how you want to collect the data. Now, face-to-face <clears throat> -face data collection. Interview or questionnaire? Who thinks it's an interview? Face-to-face -face data collection. Got some interviews. Who thinks it's a questionnaire? It is a questionnaire. The people that come up to you with a clipboard in the mall ask you a set set of questions. They don't deviate from them. They're market researchers and they have to ask exactly these questions. And they don't, they don't have the flexibility. They don't, um, they don't generally have as much input into the process. Another one, computer-aided telephone interviews. Hi, I'm calling you from Nielsen Media Research. I would like to know what your viewing habits are. Interview or questionnaire? Very good. You are going to be fooled twice, are you? Um, so, oops, sorry. So sometimes you have to really, uh, flexible is, is the big key. Um, people are, who are doing um, the computer-aided interviews and, and the face-to-face -face data collection are very frequently just people hired to ask what they've been told to ask. They're following a script. It's very rigid. Um, so one of the key, the key differentiators is the flexibility and also the size of the sample. Here's what a lot of people do when they say, well, we're going to do a survey. Let's do a survey, ask a couple questions, circulate it in the group and say, hey, does it look like good questions? Everyone say, uh-huh, those look like good, or maybe you should ask this one as well. Make a, revi a revision and then send it out into the world. Not the best way to do it. Um, some of the techniques, you know, that pop window. Surveys... Surveys have their root in behavioral research um, from psychology. And a well-constructed survey tries to eliminate things like the noise and interpretation problem with the language, um, tries to factor out for that, um, tries to eliminate um, as much as possible things like social bias. Oh, I, they might give me free stuff if I'm nice to them. Um, tries to um, do a lot of things that just asking us, you can get information from just asking a series of questions, and sometimes that's the best you can do. But understand the limitations of what you're going to get from that experience. Better is that you start with that process and iterate through it. You try to refine your survey. Try to, again, in some ways, this is usability testing. You know, am I getting good data? Am I understanding what I need? Is this answering my fundamental question? 
before you write um, a survey, and one thing that this doesn't say is not just decide a, a survey and write some questions, you really need a hypothesis. What do I want to know about my users? Are they using my online help? Um, are they even aware I have online help? Um, you really cut, start with a hypothesis and try to understand it, and you iterate through the process Little small batches, test, test, test. It's looking good. Then send it out to 10,000 people and pay the expense of the mailing and the self-addressed mailing envelope and the stamped, all of that sort of thing. When you don't want to ask those questions, when you don't even know who you should ask, I'd like to sell uh, a product to retired metal workers. But I don't know that yet, and I send it all out to um, rodeo, um, rodeo wranglers. Probably not going to get the right kind of data to inform my project decision. Just was listening to how um, professional bull wrestling is the seventh largest sport in America. That's crazy. It's <laughs> crazy. And it's growing. It's like a $9, million, $9 billion business. It's crazy. Like, to get on a bull and have them almost gore you to death. That'll be fun. Exactly. They're coming to, they're coming to the um, forum soon. I, I'm a Lightning fan, so I, I see all the things go by during the games. Pup wrestle, bull wrestling. Oh, yeah. But, hey, I imagine it's pretty exciting, especially if somebody does get gored. Um, you don't want to be forced into a method that doesn't match. You don't want to send out... Questionnaires take a long time. Um, even though you can set a lot of them out and get them back, you don't want to be forced to do something like, I have two weeks to turn around information. It's going to take you a month to get back any meaningful data. And you're still not going to get the response rate is usually typically around 10% for questionnaires. People have to be incented to fill in. Yes? Is that true of online questionnaires? It, it depends on where and when, the context. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't help it. It just is there. Um, Online questionnaires, you're pretty much going to get people who like to fill out questionnaires in some way, or they have a beef. You're really going to get that happy person who just really wants to tell you how lovely they think your site is and your product is. You're probably going to have a better response rate if you have an audience inspired to give you that feedback from, for some reason or another. Um, so it's, it's a lot faster to get that data. Um, a lot of times the tools are a lot better for data collection and then subsequent analysis. If you get a whole bunch of paper forms and you have to code those and type those in, yeah, add that to your time cycle. Um, you also, also want to be able to do something with the results. You don't want to just ask a question and then someone say, well, that's great, but we can't include um, interactive movies in our help. Sorry, we don't have no budget for that. You can't have it. No, sorry. Thanks for asking the question, but that was a waste of time. So, 10 steps. You want to prepare, set goals, that's that hypothesis. Like I said, this has its roots in, in behavioral psychology. Um, you don't have to run it like it was you know, a lab rep special, but um, you should have a hypothesis. What do you want to do with this information? Decide who you're going to ask and target that, not just who in a general sense. I can't ask teachers. I need to ask experienced teachers. I can't just ask professional bull riders. I need to ask brand new bull riders. What made you think you could... Oh. Um, then you interview the target users. That's part of the that iterative process to understand that you have the right type of test. You, you work with them on that. Production, you have to create the information. You have to figure out how you're going to deliver it, whether it's going to be online, whether it's going to be people with a clipboard out in the mall, that type of information. Again, test, test, test. 
Um, that's the kind of the end stage test. So the first stage test is make sure you've got it right, collect some information, collect their questions, run it back through the cycle, and here you test your end product. Okay, I took all of that information, I came up with a design. Does it work? Yes, no, revise, and then send it out. Conduct it. Analyzing is a very difficult task. It takes a long time. Coding data is really tough. Um, just actually observe that. Not, um, not with the test that I'd run, but I saw somebody um, code and compile a huge amount of written data, which is difficult to do. And she just kind of threw it out to the world. It didn't fly. Um, and, you know, doing that, that, that ties into how you analyze it and how you publish it. Um, you've got to make it meaningful pe for people. You have to give, again, apply the same processes of usability to your own cycles. Um, you have to be able to do that. Um, I think that's questions. There's a, there's a much larger um, presentation behind all of these, but I, um, again, we're late on a Thursday night, Fridays, tomorrow. We don't want to go that heavy that long. Each of these presentations were themselves about 40 pages. I've clipped out the 10, I think, that are give you a good, a good meaty feel of it. And if you want, I can provide you with the base presentations uh, as you like. Any other questions about user surveys? Okay. Requirements? Give me the hard one. Okay. Requirements. What they are. Expected and desired reaction to a system. How well, not how it works, not what it does, but how well does it work for the user. And it's based on the user goals and it targets their satisfaction in some ways, which is a difficult, slippery thing, but you can actually, you can actually put numbers to that. Um, they aren't functional requirements, they aren't use cases, they aren't wish lists, they aren't, wouldn't it be nice if it were easy to use and, and fast to learn and made no errors and that sort of thing? just doesn't work that way. I mean, you have to make it concrete. And most certainly not mission statements from any marketing department. And the emphasis is how well for the intended users. Not for, not for the programmers, not for the marketing people even, but the intended users, who at the end of the day is going to have to sit down and live with this and curse your name if it's horrible. They don't know your name, but they're cursing it. They're somewhere on a cosmic level. Users, what users needs often has to do with the actuality of their task. And by that, I mean, a lot of times they'll say, I need something that does A. And then you watch their task, and they really do the process like B. Experts often like that. They don't, they don't think they're so ingrained in what they do, they have a hard time remembering all the steps. I mean, think about you know, some simple task. You know, could you verbally say, how you, um, you know, think about giving directions, for instance. That's a good one. Um, sometimes, you know, how many times have you been driving along going, I don't remember anything of the last five minutes, but I'm at my destination. Oh, good. Um, you don't remember anything in between. And then you get to some place and someone says, well, how did you get here? Can you tell me your route? No. <laughs> Let me think about it. And then you give them a route, but it's like one street off because that, that extra shortcut you just, you just did, you didn't think about it. Um, so... What you, they need often has to do with those things that they have a hard time articulating. Their expectations, um, I, should, I should grab this um, electronically. Is there's, have you ever seen the um, cartoon that said, uh, that has the picture of the tree um, and a tire swing? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The, 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 the gist is, is that basically says, 
you know, what marketing asks for, and it has, you know, this elaborate throne on a, on a gold cord that swings from the arm of the chair, um, what sales told them was, and it's a, a roller coaster, and what the you know, development actually did, and they cut a section of the tree out and hung the tire you know, underneath the branches. What the user really wanted was a basic tire swing. You know. And so the expectations sometimes don't match the information you get, number one. And also, sometimes they're just flat unrealistic. Um, I'd like artificial intelligence to inform my um, training curriculum so that I can detect when there's a problem and I can fix it in the fly and make it happen. But the truth is AI is just not there because um, humans just aren't that easily read. Um, so, but how far can you get them there? How can you make them feel like they've gotten a, a good step along the way? You know, you're not going to give them a fully interactive how um, to <laughs> tell them what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and to anticipate their needs, but you can give them something that might move them along that path. So their needs are the essentials. Um, you want to meet the needs first. They're going to be, interestingly enough, even though the expectations they'll be able to express in some ways, um, their needs are what will make them happy. They just don't, they don't necessarily know how to articulate it. Um, they just, it, again, you get down to those little things that you just take for granted. Um, the other thing that's good with tech, I think about um, grammar rules. I don't know why the comma goes there. I just know the comma goes there. <laughs> I learned it back when. I could have quoted your chapter and verse, you know, 10 years ago. But now I just know the comma goes there. So it's that sort of interaction. And when you do requirements, and I'm getting um, more towards how you, how you write requirements, but you want to wait towards the needs. You want to give more um, priority to meeting the needs. Fair enough? Okay. I have two sides here of information that you get um, to inform your requirements. Things about the user, and I already told you about user and task analysis, their expectations, where they are, um, what their job description is versus also what the task is, which may not be the same thing. It's always fun to talk when, when senior management rings you in and says, this is what they do, and you meet the people in there. No, that's what they think we do, because, but that's stupid. We don't do that. Um, I, I've, I've been there. That um, was an interesting space. Um, and their personal, you know, what they want to accomplish, what they hope, you know, this would really help me if you, you know, handled this step a little bit better. It would really help me if you supported um, classroom management. Yeah, I'm in the, deeply in the world of teachers right now, so this is the fastest, lowest hanging fruit in my brain. Um, what did they hope to accomplish? The business has its needs too. They, there's market analysis needs, the things like what will make us more competitive, what will make us grow faster, what will keep this person employed if we do this um, because we'll make more money. Um, the technology drivers, uh, also budget, certainly. Um, yeah, we'd like to have AI, but we can't afford it. Um, their, pro their productivity goals and what they want to accomplish uh, as a company long term. So all of that feeds into the process where they overlap and sometimes more or less. Um, you get the things that you absolutely have to do top. And a lot of times what you'll find is that's where the needs are, that's where the pain points are, um, pain points on both sides of the equation, are where those must-have qualities are. And I do distinguish between the user and the business. The business are the people who pay you. They're the management that brings you in, but they're not the people who are going to touch your software every single day. Um, but the user determines the success of the project. I said that 85% failure rate, and you know, you, managers coming in saying, 
we're going to change the way they work, and the users just defeat it. You know, the worker bees, you, you're not going to make this fly without us. not going to happen. Yes? Where did you get the figure, the 85%? What, is it, but what are we referring to as failure? Uh, well, failure in this case is actually not successfully deploying and remaining live in the real world for any length of time. I mean, sometimes they're deployed. Failure, that 85 includes um, fully deployed systems that um, don't ever reach their... Uh, what's, the mark, what's the economic term? There's um, return on investment. That's one of them. But it never, it never uh, recaptures the cost and the investments put into it. Um, and that figure, um, I've seen it in literature. I can't give you a source off the top of my head. I just, I know that every time I see, you know, how successful computer software is, how we're progressing in computer software development as a maturity of the, of the profession, I haven't seen that number dip a whole lot. Plus or minus 5% tops. Um, just not seeing, we still, we still have a pretty immature profession in some ways. Um, you know, the, uh, if you ever have talked to developers about the, um, whether they're engineers or not, <laughs> it's an interesting debate when you get knowledgeable people. A lot of people say, well, I'm a software engineer. Well, engineers are licensed. <laughs> engineers are, are, have a certain certification requirement from usually an uh, organization like a state. Uh, you can't practice as a civil engineer without these qualities, but a, a software engineer can be a software engineer anyway. So you get into the, some of those discussions, and that starts to point to the immaturity of the, of the, you know, there's a fair amount of art, not science to it. And so that's where the failure points come. Okay, when do they determine them? They, are, they come at the end of the analysis phase. You want to have a fair amount of information. They may be informed in the design phase. Remember, you're testing all along here. They may be informed a little bit during the development phase, which will inform your designs, which should update, you know, if you have a truly living requirements document. Um, I've never had the chance to do this, but I'd really love to do requirements as a wiki. I think that would be a locked wiki, moderated wiki. But I'd like to do it um, in that respect because I think it would have a much more dynamic approach. Since I can't seem to convince people that things like doors and what's the rational, rational product? A rational rose? No, that's, that's, the, that's the modeling tool. What's, Requisite Pro, thank you. Um, there's, a, there's very, very, very expensive requirements project, products out there, and I've found very few people willing to invest in it, but a wiki's free. So, and it gives me a lot of that dynamic. It doesn't necessarily give me that, that uh, traceability that um, those, to, those big tools give you, but I'd love to do them that way. So requirements come at the end of analysis, but they get informed at each step of the way. Design informs the requirements, you refine them. Development informs the design, which may inform it a little bit. And you may get a little direct development right into the requirements. Um, if you get a lot, you've probably done something wrong. Huh? Well, and, but that's, that's, it's not, here I'm saying you're in the big step, you're solidly in that big step, not coming back. If you're doing iterations, of course, each pass through is going to be more informative than the last. So um, this is not factoring in multiple iterations. If you're, if you're doing waterfall, this is, this is a lot of trouble. Because <laughs> at that point, you've got a lot of code and a lot of expense already tied up in the project. Hmm? Yes, it is. But it's a myth that a lot of people believe in. A lot of faith in that. Why develop them? Why take the trouble to figure these things out? Again, it's a communication tool. First and foremost, it's a communication tool. It's internal to your team communication tool. Um, it establishes usability as a foundation principle for your project. It really says the user is important, 
the user matters, the things that we deliver, uh, how we do it, what we do, is going to be directed to those needs and those, those requirements. They will support your testing. They will provide the success criteria to say, yes, this is a usable product based on our goals and what we understand of our users. Uh, and it really does serve as a rallying cry because you can point back to it. In a, in a familiar context, the, the thing that I like about the requirements space um, is that it's something that people do refer back to. Uh, some general criteria. Now, the list of criteria vary depending, you know, I think Jacob Nielsen has five of his and uh, Whitney Quisenberry has the five E's of usability. Very nice um, to remember, um, including efficiency and error tolerance. Those are ones we have in common. But in general, you want to know things like how fast and, and how productive can they be with it? Um, does it prevent them from making errors? Back to my example of you never get slapped on the hand for pushing a button you shouldn't push because you're not finished with the form. It just doesn't let you do it. How relevant is it to them? Uh, that becomes important when you're talking about the consumer market. Why should I use your um, newsreader over somebody else's? Why should I pay you money for your newsreader? You know, how, how will that really help what I need to do? And how much will I like it? Uh, accessibility I mentioned. So you need to figure out, again, that priority. Where is that priority? Um, the priority of a school administrator uh, who uses a system infrequently for reporting purposes and for um, more of quarterly type of reports that have to go upward is going to be probably things like memorability and error tolerance because they're not going to be in that daily. A teacher who's going to be using something every single day in the classroom is going to care about efficiency, going to care about relevance and, and their satisfaction as well. So um, different users are going to have different criteria and who, who you're designing the interface for determines on, um, answers the it depends question. Would you equate memorability with Intuitive, yes. Okay. In some ways. Uh, efficiency also has some of that. But yeah. The top three, I, break, I don't have intuitiveness because I have the top three are kind of, they each have a component of intuitiveness in my mind. But learnabilities are probably the closest to the direct. How they're constructed, you do need to determine. <clears throat> Again, you need to know who you're doing it for. So what criteria matters to that person? Um, you need to make them measurable. They have to be tangible. They're not just make it easy to use. What does that mean? You have to break that down. You need to come up with this construction that's measurable. Who's going to, who, how many people are going to succeed with this? Now, in the case of functionality, if I push the button, it saves the file. There's no gray area. 100% of the time, push the button, saves the file. Done. Users aren't that cut and dry. We're just not that, you know, we're not ISO compliant units. Um, we're all different. And so you can almost never say, I have, we'll have a 100% success rate with a usability test. Occasionally, there are certain things. I want a 100% success rate on my login. I want to make sure that 100% of my users can get into the system. Um, there are certain key fundamentals that I want to have that. Very, very few. Um, it defines those conditions. Again, this is really heading towards that testing criteria. It defines what success is early. Um, the components of that, the different things, is what should they accomplish? How are they going to do that? Um, again, the who. You need to know who you're writing this for because the requirements for an administrator are very different than the requirements for a teacher. What conditions will be performed under? Um, teacher, 20 kids. Teacher, 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 I need your help. That's a, that's a different 
kind, you know, you, you start to talk about things like memorability and error tolerance because they're going to be interrupted in a task. They're not going to be able to completely use this in their classroom because they're going to have thousands of interruptions and they want to make, we want to make sure the system's robust enough to handle that in the real sense of the word. And how else do the tasks be performed? That's where you start getting into the numbers. 80% of my users should accomplish this with less than three errors in the process of doing that. Um, I have a lot of, there's a lot of um, um, examples in the <coughs> base presentation. I don't, I'm not going to go into a lot of them here because I need to slim this down a little bit. Uh, general tips, kind of reiterating in some ways the, the previous slide. Quantifiable is important. Um, absolute, sometimes, you know, three clicks, 10 users of nine, or not 10 users of nine, 10 users of 20 or whatever. Um, relative is a comparative. Um, you usually have to have benchmarks to make compare. It has to be 50% faster to complete this task than the previous tool or the pre previous release or the competitor's product, um, that sort of thing. Again, user, user, user. Focus on their tasks and goals, not functionality, not um, system um, behaviors. Again, you know, need to know who wins: teacher, administrator. Who's who's going to? If I'm going to have to make a trade-off, and very frequently you will because there's not enough time or money or budget for uh, resources or knowledge about those things to make everything happen 100% for every user. You need to prioritize and know who, who's going to win, who's going to get more time for that. You know, who's going to get the, you know, if they're using a common screen, maybe the administrator and a teacher share a screen. Um, the teacher's in it every day, the, user, uh, the administrator's in there once a month. Teacher wins, you know, that sort of thing. Um, prioritize the requirements because some you're just not going to actually achieve. It's a little squishier than functional requirements in that respect, although um, there's a fair amount of functional requirements that we re-scope your project and get down. Be realistic. You're not going to get 100%. You're not going to get everybody. We're just not that, not that consistent as people. And test them. And you will be testing them as part of your design so you, as you implement them. Um, that's, that'll be how you test them. You don't put a document in front of somebody again. They're going to have all that noise. They're going to interpret. They're going to say, yeah, that's what we want. No, that's not what we want. So you want to test them through your design. Create a prototype that has two clicks. Is that enough? Does that get them where they want to go? No, I really need those pieces of data together. I don't want even a click between them. Okay. That was a lot of information to cover in a very short period of time. Any questions? That's, that's a fairly long. My biggest presentation, I've given this as a half-day seminar, so um, it's, it's a pretty meaty topic. Yes? How would you adapt this to an internal user group? I do a very guerrilla usability approach. I would really take down, if it's a small group of people that you have direct access to, I wouldn't necessarily document them. You can really apply the agile methodologies pretty much straight up at its best. Agile methodologies is something that I usually say is bunk, but um, in the case of a small internal population where you have access to everybody, um, you can actually do this. You can go to them and say, you know, tell me what you need from a system, and, and that becomes user stories under the Agile methodology. Um, those user stories will include things, they will include the essence of some of their requirements for um, usability. I probably wouldn't worry about formalizing things like, okay, I really need to be able to process this uh, application in one hour tops, and that's with approvals and everything. They, they can tell you that. So you can just talk to them. I would interview them. I would um, 
do some rapid prototyping and work with them and say, hey, does this meet your needs and, and start to refine it that, you know, whatever product it is that way. Um, but it's kind of nice to be working with internal people because you have direct access. You, you don't have to... The term RAD? Mm -hmm. Rapid yeah. Application development is this what? The, that's a precursor to the, the Agile thoughts, but it's the same thing. It's working, working, um, Agile is really based very much on getting, getting with the user at all steps of the process. RAD usually, RAD and JAD, both um, uh, joint apple, uh, I forget what the J is, joint? Joint. Joint application. Yeah, same, same, same thought process is that that usually kind of focus them in the design phase, whereas Agile tries to, to bring them all throughout the phase and get their input all throughout the phase. Um, but uh, it's very much that process of design, a test, um, or design build test, depending on what you're doing. If you have to do it very quickly, but you know you have a slice of functionality that you can just work with so that the code changes aren't painful or the, you know, deliverable changes aren't painful, you can, you know, um, design, implement, test, design, implement, test, or redesign, implement, test. Um, so you can, you can apply that. But I wouldn't document them exhaustively. You might just keep a bulleted list. Wants to get things done in an hour. Um, you know, would like to have, you know, be able to complete this. They, they do a task maybe uh, once a quarter and reporting how many applications they put through um, the system. And, um, you know, I might just quickly write, you want to be able to have a highly memorable task, a lot of support, because they don't do it that often. I just might document those very informally for myself in that kind of situation. Um, you don't bring a lot of heavy process to that kind of a, uh, of a environment, in my opinion. It's very, very rarely worth it and very rarely rewarded. So, but keep the principles in mind. The basic principles still exist. 